welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, the very first episode, our guest is Sean Spicer. Sean has traveled tens of thousands of miles by heel, thumbs, wheels, and wit. By the time he was 30 years old, he had hiked the length of South Korea, hitchhiked across America, and somehow along the way managed to serve with the 101st Airborne Division and study philosophy at UC Berkeley. Driven by an intense need to redefine the impossible, as well as himself, he now resides in his home state of California and is slowly teaching his son how to road trip. Ten years ago today, he began a long walk, which is chronicled in his new book, Guerrilla Camping, which is also being released today. You can find out more at his website, guerrillacamping.net. That's G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A-C-A-M-P-I-N-G dot net. You can find out more about me by visiting my website at www.thisburgess.com. That's www.thisburgess.com. The official website for The Rob Burgess Show is www.therobburgessshow.com. That's www.therobburgessshow.com. Follow on Twitter at Rob Burgess Show, all one word, no the. The podcast is hosted at Libsyn at therobburgessshow.libsyn.com. Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Like the page on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Follow on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash the dash Rob dash Burgess dash show. The email for the show is the Rob Burgess show at gmail.com. Our theme song, Saturday Night Fever, is by Flamingosis, who generously agreed to allow its use. Thank you, Flamingosis. And now on to the show. Good evening, Mr. Burgess. Mr. Spicer. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm doing well. I am uh, I'm absolutely excited and honored that you are the very first guest on the Rob Burgess Show. How do you feel about them, Apples? Um, a little bit nervous. No reason to be nervous, man. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. Like, is this going to be like Terry Gross asking those hard questions? Am I going to have to jump off the show like Bill O'Reilly. That was a great episode. But Yeah, I mean I don't I don't have those uh I don't have those Trump apples. Like, I can't just cancel the debate. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. We have known each other, I was just thinking about this the other day. Almost ten years. Yeah. It's pretty close. Yeah. You are one of my nearest and oldest friends and uh even though we live thousands of miles apart now, uh I still consider you one of my best friends and I'm I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh thanks, Rob. So definitely one of my friends and it's brought forth some of my best ideas and <laughs> I learned a lot from you. 
Wow. Well, that's great. Um, so tell me, uh, just let's before we get into um, your your book that's coming out that I uh, did apparently some editing on. Uh, I saw an early draft of. Uh, enjoyed greatly in whatever form I got it in. I don't know how long in the process, but um, just you know, tell people, kind of just give people the Sean Spicer experience from from A to Z. <laughs> Oh, well, if my experience went from A to Z, that'd be easy. Uh-huh. Um, I, I've got some odd punctuation marks in there um, and a couple of Greek, a couple of, uh, Greek letters. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. I just kind of take life as it comes at me and do it in a, I guess, a more interesting way than some people. Um, I tend to believe that nothing's impossible. And once I get an idea in my head that I want to do something, I will do it. So that walk that you and I met each other at the end of, um, I'd been talking about that since my sophomore year of high school. Mm-hmm. And I ran into an old high school friend about probably six weeks before we were actually going to depart. So I'd sold the warehouse. I'd pretty much put all of my stuff in storage. And I ran into this guy at the grocery store. And he's, wow, you're finally doing it. <laughs> And this was ten years later. Hey, did you want my life story? Whatever, whatever you want people to know just about you. Just um, I am not running for president. <laughs> I think that's the most important takeaway here. <laughs> Supreme Court justice? Would you take that? Uh, not that they give it to me this year. Mm-hmm. We have to wait. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm a veteran, um, a victim of what they would call the poverty draft. I uh, came from a very poor family, and in order to go to college, I had to go in the military. And the military turned me from a 98-pound bookworm into somebody who realized that, no, I'm not limited by anything. Uh, gave me a lot of confidence. After the military, I went to Berkeley, uh, which moved me up into the Bay Area, which after... Uh, about a year or two after college, I started uh, working and managing nightclubs and doing marketing for them. Uh, doing that made me realize that I wasn't a geek. Gave me a lot of uh, confidence and comfort around people. And so there was kind of a one-two effect there, that I was confident in my own physicality from the military and then confident in my own ability to socialize from being forced to work around large groups of people. And building into the walk and then building into the book. I had already done a lot of long walks. I'd uh, walked the uh, length of South Korea. Um, I'd hitchhiked most of the uh, eastern United States and then the south. And I was just ready to go. Wow. Um, it's it's an amazing uh, – you have some amazing stories uh, in, in the in the draft I, I read. Um, it's it's instructional. You know, the, there is an instructional element to at least the version I saw. Um, oh, yeah, you really, definitely you, a how-to book. What's that? It's definitely a how-to book. Yeah, totally. But but there's it's not just like strictly – it's not like a dry how-to book at all. Um, there's some definite like flavor of what it's like to be <laughs> – on the trail and some of the people that you meet. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's quite a, it's quite a read, I have to say. Thank you. 
Yeah, and to answer where where the book was when you did some editing, it was pretty much finished. Okay. It just took a long time to actually get around to publishing it. Well, very cool. Do you know exactly when it's going to be out? It'll be out March 11th on Amazon and Google Play, and then shortly thereafter on it or on iBooks, and also uh, there will be a print edition available mm. shortly thereafter. Excellent. Well, um, as soon as we get this episode up, I will definitely have links to, to everything. And um, it kind of is coincidence and, you know, synergy or whatever that we're I'm starting this podcast uh, and you're launching your book. And, you know, I feel like, you know, we're both, we're both family men. We're moving into, uh, you know, new and exciting phases of our lives, you know. That is true. And I think you mentioned being a family man that you are yourself. Um, that's the, that's been the wildest adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you may or may not hear in the background um, some some voices, <laughs> <laughs> some some dog voices, some child voices. But yeah, it's it's really. Uh, it's just a really good idea to be doing things for yourself, I think. And that's one of the things I've always admired about you. Um, in fact, the first time we really interacted, in my memory, was when I saw you changing the own bra- your own brakes in your car, and I just was astounded by that. Um, <laughs> so it never would occur to me, and, and still might not occur to me, to try to attempt to do that. But you were just like, you were doing it. And you trusted yourself enough in the job you were doing, um, obviously, to put you in the those you were driving around in the hands of your, you know, handiwork. So you, you stood in front of your work as, as the as a break shop near my office. The slogan of is <laughs> stand in front of anyway. Um, but yeah, no, that I just uh, you've always like had a spirit that I that I admire and that I wish to encourage in myself. So that that is always something I look uh, look up to you for. Yes, and I believe. At some point after you saw me doing that, you said that I was possibly one of the manliest men ever met. I still deny that. Today. <laughs> well, maybe manly was was the wrong word to use, but <laughs> but it, you know, a, a positive, uh, affirming term. <laughs> yes, I also had the grizzly beard at the time. I believe. Sure, absolutely. Yes, I was willing to do a lot of things, but not shave on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, have you seen this movie uh, that's, that's out about... There's a couple of movies, actually, about walking long trails. Um, there are many, many movies about walking long trails. Some of them are uh, happier than others. Mm-hmm. Wild was about, I think, what was it, the Pacific Coast? I believe that was a, yeah, a woman who walked the Pacific Coast Trail. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I have not seen that one. Um, However, I believe they made a movie of, uh, I believe his name is Bill Bison, or Bison, Mm -hmm. uh, A Walk in the Woods. Yes. And while I haven't seen that movie, that book is incredible. Yeah. Um, one of his other books is actually one of my favorite books, uh, Short History of Nearly Everything. Um, mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed that book. Um, so I'm sure I would enjoy that one, too. So, Well, if we still lived in uh, facing apartments rather than bookending the country, I would walk over and read it to you. <laughs> of course you would. Actually, maybe that will be the next walk. Oh, well. <laughs> Take a hiking book across the country. <laughs> <laughs> To lend it to Rob Burgess. That's a lot of pressure. 
can, do I have to walk it back, or can I have other options? <laughs> I think that would be an excellent challenge. In yeah. terms of the DIY thing, I suppose you could fly. <laughs> sure. Uh, but your arms would get tired. Yeah, another one of those um, trail movies that I felt the book was better as well, although the movie was good, was um, Into the Wild mm-hmm. or Into the Wilderness by uh, yes. John Krakenauer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of those that didn't have such a happy ending. No, but apparently it was, you know, uh, pretty close to the real story, right? Yeah. In fact, probably about a year ago, um, John wrote a follow-up to the book mm-hmm. um, that they had finally really nailed it down that it was poisoning from potato seeds. Mm-hmm. So for the listeners that aren't familiar with the story, there was a lot of motivations that I have in common with the character in the book, um, which is nonfiction, uh, about a a boy, really, on the verge of manhood who set out to um, be his own person. And so he set fire to his car, his driver's license, his credit card, and decided to just opt out of the entire system. He came from a very privileged family and was sick of the trappings of it all and set out to experience life unfiltered and found himself at the end of the book in a old bus that had been outfitted as a hunting shelter in the Alaska wilderness. Um, Now, the hunting shelters in the Alaska wilderness are all good in the summer, but he tried to overwinter in the bus and was found dead sometime later. Yeah, it's a great movie, too. Um, I've not read the book, but I would like to. Well, I can't take too many books on this walk across the country to bring you books. Uh, support your local library. <laughs> I think I have some outstanding finds. <laughs> the truth comes out. Oh, God. Library police are going to be at my door tomorrow morning. Yes, there goes your chance for the Supreme Court. Oh, jeez. <laughs> So what about that Supreme Court thing, huh? Um, I think it's too early to say anything. I think one of the biggest problems in politics is people say things before they think and before really all the uh, facts are able to come out. I have a feeling we're going to have a Supreme Court justice before Obama leaves the office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he'll at least nominate somebody, but it'll kind of be throwing somebody to the wolves in some ways, won't it? I think there's always an element of throwing somebody to the wolves. True. I mean, the the great silent um, Clarence Thomas. I believe just celebrated ten wolf. years of ask, not asking a question. <laughs> yes, it has been a decade since Clarence Thomas has asked a question. It's an amazing experience. And a lot of people put that off that uh, Scalia was so aligned with him mm-hmm. that he just didn't need to. Oh, and there's that familyhood. Yeah, you heard it. I told you it's, it could happen. It's it's a uh... yes at any given time. <laughs> good night, Jack could run out and start singing along with fire trucks. Uh-huh. Well, I, hold on. You just mentioned Jack, so please explain for people that that don't know what a Jack is that what a Jack is. Um, Jack may be the largest dog ever. I, um, I, I, I I can vouch for that statement. He is the largest dog I've ever ever met or seen ever. 
So at the end of the walk, the whole purpose of the walk, um, it was really my last long foot voyage. And my goal had been to walk from Mexico to Canada in sections. And this was an attempt to do that. And along the way, um, my girlfriend, now my wife, and I wanted to find land in order to settle down, start a little organic farm, try to live off the land, and try to build our own home. The Elk Creamery in Mendocino County was calling its goat herd, and we had easy access of up to 200 goats. The cabin was close to finished. It was time to get ready and do it. And a mountain lion had been killing our neighbor's dogs. And we knew that if we got goats, we would just merely be providing mountain lion food. Unless we got livestock protection dogs. Mm -hmm. Some of the best in Mendocino County were known as, uh, what were they? They were either known as Potter Valley Mountain Dogs or Dane Mastiffs. And Jack is a great Dane Italian Mastiff mix. He weighs 175 pounds. He's three feet at the shoulder. And we are not living on a cabin in the woods with an organic farm and goats anymore. But one does not give up a member of your family. That's right. And Jack is now a protection dog for our five-year-old son, Spencer, mm-hmm. and living in urban San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, and one friend described having a dog like Jack is a little bit like having a classic car. <laughs> Everybody has to stop and talk to you about it. <laughs> It's a striking uh, thing to see just walking down the street. Like, if you just saw this thing coming out of somewhere, you'd, you'd do a double take, like if you were just walking by. Yes. Yeah, my son is five years old, and Spencer and Jack are eye-to-eye with each other. That's crazy. Because we might, we might as well bring uh, Spike into this. Spike, whom you know well. Oh, yes. Um, is a dachshund. You may hear him from time to time on this show. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you heard my kid, which you just did, uh, you'll, you'll definitely hear him. And, and maybe even Willow. You never know. She gets pretty loud when she's being neglected, which, you oh, know, her Willow. feelings get hurt often. <laughs> so. so, Willow and Spike. Mm-hmm. The odd couple of the animal world. Really? But in, in, a, in a certain way, now that there's a kid around, sort of more on the same side than they've ever been. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we told you uh, that Leroy moved out. Like, he literally moved out hmm. next door to a house with two barking, yelling dogs, <laughs> rather than being a household with Spencer and Jack. And the cat wow. just would not come home. Hmm. I can see and that. sit on the other side of the fence with these two dogs looking through mm-hmm. the fence at us. And one day, after about six weeks of living next door, he comes over, he scratches at the front door, we go to let him in, he looks at us, he runs back, runs around the corner, goes back behind the gate. Mm-hmm. And about maybe a month later, my neighbor comes up and he goes, listen, I want to talk to you about Leroy Brown. <laughs> like, yeah, um, I'm sorry if it's a bother, man, he just doesn't want to come home. He's like, I know, he sleeps on my pregnant daughter's belly. All day long. And we love that cat. And we were wondering, can we have him? (laughs) And Leroy managed to, of his own motivation, move out of our house. Wow. And for the uninitiated, um, Leroy, the companion to our 175-pound dog, was a three-legged, long-haired black cat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Which in tandem was quite a sight. Yeah, Jack. Jack is an amazing, amazing creature in in every way. So, um, 
And Jack's also another uh, example of my full-throated approach to things. Mm-hmm. I didn't go out and just get a dog. I knew his family. Um, I knew the people who were... I wouldn't call them breeders. They had a large sheep farm in Potter Valley. Uh, Potter Valley Organics, I believe it was. When we got uh, Jack and his sister Liberty, we went and we spent probably about eight months of intense obedience and ability and search and rescue training with them. And again, it was uh, kind of like um, my hiking adventures. Is I wasn't going to do it in a half measure. It wasn't going to be a Coleman backpack and a uh, a motorhome, so to speak. And taught me pretty much how to be a father in terms of consistency and patience. Yeah, I mean, um, I definitely feel that same way, too. I mean, a lot of people do often, I think, get pets before they get children for, for that reason. I think it was it was definitely true in our our case. I mean, we just, you know, chronologically, we, we got together. I then brought Willow home. We went to the, to the pet store, and we bought, we bought Spike, or she bought Spike, rather. <laughs> um, so then we both had an animal, but we were both together at that point. And we were living together, and it was like, you know, it's an often, I think it's an often thing that people do when they're, like, preparing for children. And I think it, it's a, it's probably a good gauge in some ways. It really taught me not to be grossed out in some ways. Um, oh, yeah. Like, I, I definitely am a lot less squeamish, and now I'm totally, nothing can shock me anymore after being a parent, so... I've, I mean, just some of the things I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it definitely prepares you for that in certain ways, for sure. And especially a dog like yours, that's just there's so much of it. Yeah, there was a point when we were going through the, uh, I think it was the second tier of obedience training, where Jack decided uh, another dog was not allowed to lay where it was laying um, as we were doing uh, walk-arounds, where they have all the dogs sitting in a circle. And you walk your dog in a circle right in front of the other dogs, and... The job is for your dog to not be distracted. It's to be focused on you and the dog at hand. And Jack turns, and at this point, it was a puppy. He was about as big as his head is now. And Jack turns and decides he's just going to attack one of the other dogs. And I pull Jack out of the circle, and I jump on top of him. And I lay down on top of him until he pays attention to me. And I hear the next week that one of the uh, other individuals taking the course had complained to the teacher that I was overly aggressive with my dog. She explained that the dog would eventually outweigh me. And what I did was the gentlest way to assure dominance and to assure that the dog would pay attention to me because I would not be able to pull him back when he's full grown. And nowadays, it's really sometimes amazing when I'm walking him, I can just use one finger on his leash to pull him back and just jiggle the leash a little tiny bit, and he stops and looks back at me, mm-hmm. comes back to heel. And a lot of times, even here in the hills of San Diego, where we're in, I would say, the edge of inner city and suburbs, I can easily take him out off leash. And it's because of that kind of consistency. Mm-hmm. And understanding between the two of us. Well, I mean, you can't afford with a dog like that to have it be out of control. Um, like, part of the reason, I'll be honest, part of the reason Spike is the way he is is, is 
you know, he is the way he is, of course. You know him, but he, we we do get, probably let him get away with a little bit more because he is a wiener dog. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm sure if he was the size of Jack, we would be scared to have him around, especially a child. Oh, my, oh my goodness. Well, remember when you and I were just getting to know each other, there was a day where you had taken Spike out for a walk, and you and I were talking, and Spike was running in circles around you. And you were just simply passing the leash from one hand to another as the dog ran in constant, tireless circles sure. at full speed in this six-foot diameter arc around you. And I was just waiting for Spike to run fast enough that he was able to go airborne on the leash on some of the turns. He's an incredibly uh, energetic dog, and to say that he is a Dawson does disservice. He's a beautiful red-haired, long-haired Dawson. That as he runs, it just flies. He's super fabulous. Yeah, he is super fabulous, and in fact, his fabulousness extends to the fact that I believe that he was not allowed to be shown, and and I believe he was bred to be a show show dog, and his tail was what they call too gay, and it came uh, in a curvature, and it's supposed to stand straight up, but I think that is just an extension of his, like, personality, don't you? I mean, it's partially, like, yeah, it's like that, but it's like that because he's so him. I'm here and I'm Spike. <laughs> exactly. It's a flag. It's his freak flag, literally. So There you go. I, I haven't thought of Spike's tail as a freak flag. <laughs> oh, I have. I've had plenty of time to think about Spike's tail. <laughs> Believe you me. <laughs> but uh, speaking of uh, kids, dude, we just just note, I mean, I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but your kid is about the cutest freaking kid ever. I mean, outside of my I own, of course. Yeah, he's a gap-tooth wonder now. He's lost his teeth. Mm-hmm. And has just started baseball. Um, interesting anecdote. He has first um, baseball practice on Friday, mm-hmm. and they have to get a cup. And he fell in love with his cup, and he was running on the house knocking on it and going, Mommy, I've got penis armor. I've got penis armor. <laughs> Which I could... Almost see myself running around the house doing if I ever had reason to wear a cup. <laughs> Except for having two individuals that run around with their heads at crotch level. <laughs> yeah, so the uh, the fatherhood thing, it's another one of those great adventures, great learning experiences. Where I think you learn as much about your own character as you do as, about being a father. Mm-hmm. When Ryan got pregnant with Spencer, we were living in the mountains. Um, I was still a hobo. Mm-hmm. And now here we are in the suburbs. I've got a uh, 9 to 5 Monday through Friday job um, working for a software startup. Um, I get up every day. I wear button-down shirts. Um, and some of my old friends that I've known from the trail um, kind of look at me with sideways eyes. Hmm. And they're like, man, you've gotten square in whatever um, impolite prolance they prefer to use. But the truth is you have to prioritize things. And that's something that on the walks you have to prioritize things. Um, When you're looking at hiking from Florida to Maine over a summer, um, hitchhiking, you have to account for everything you're going to carry and how you're going to take care of it. 
um, so that everything fits together and allows you to keep going and allows you to provide for yourself. The introduction of Spencer into our lives has meant that I have to think about how everything fits together. And now instead of thinking about where the next great adventure will be, I'm thinking about things like how do I avoid him having to join the Army in order to pay for college? How do I prepare him for something that I went through when I was 13 for when I die? How do I leave a record? How do I leave a legacy? Um, and how do I instill the lessons that he needs to know over the short amount of time we will actually have together. And so that was another one of those uh, impetuses for getting the book finally out and published was to get the book behind me so that I could start working on possibly another chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, that, And we still have great adventures. We did a wonderful road trip, Destination East, which found us um, arriving almost by accident at the Grand Canyon. So he has explored a little bit of the country. He loves traveling. He's not quite so much like me in that he loves hotels. Hmm. <laughs> but he gets that from his mother. <laughs> <laughs> i got to be honest. I love a good hotel myself. So. <laughs> All right. I'm just as happy with a tent. Sure. If it's warm out, if it's warm out and there are bugs, I'm just as happy with... I'm a good tree to lean under, sit on my pack and take a nap. I feel like I always, like, don't set up the tent, tent up correctly or something. <laughs> I can't recall if you were one of the um, tent mishaps at the wedding. Oh, yes. That was one of the, yeah, exactly. I mean, case in point. You were definitely not the largest tent mishap. No, no, no. There were much larger ones. <laughs> yes, you you informed me. Um, you were actually the first person down for coffee the morning of the wedding. Um, <laughs> where I believe your words were... Man, I don't know what happened last night, but your friends know how to party. Yep. All I heard was screaming, was someone screaming, I've never wanted to kill anybody in my life, but I want to kill you now. (laughs) You feed in my tent. Yes, I remember that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, as long as we're bringing up your wedding, we should just say that was one of the best weddings ever. That was pretty fun. Um, Yeah, well, when you have 44 acres and 80 close friends and family. Let me just um, let me yeah, just let me just just, just, just paint the picture for how beautiful uh this this was. I mean we we just were spoiled up there. I mean I don't even know how if we knew how lucky we were to be up in this place. Oh I knew. Oh I know you, you maybe you yeah. <laughs> fair enough. I literally gave blood, sweat and tears for that place. Sure, sure you um, did. I know you did. And, yeah, so you were the one who described it as living at the end of the world. Yeah, basically. And we lived at the end of a road that was 18 miles from civilization, really. I believe we were 10 miles from the nearest telephone line. Um, I don't know how far we were from the nearest power line, so it was all solar-powered, so pristine and quiet. And spanning off to the west... Uh, was a timber parcel that was in recovery that stretched all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Um, we were actually due east of Mendocino. Um, to the south of us were Montgomery Woods, home to, I believe, is the fifth largest tree in the world. And to the north of us was uh, the Jackson State Park. So we were sitting back up to about half a million pristine redwood acres. So there was nothing east of us. Except mm-hmm. trees and ocean. 
and just, you know, the, the driving. And I just wanted to <laughs> describe the car I was in at this time, trying to get to these locations. Uh, I had a uh, Mitsubishi Eclipse um, that sat about, I don't know, whatever, how many inches from the ground. Um, not very many. Uh, it really was not meant for Northern California. Um, it's it, Ironically, it's <laughs> since I moved back to Indiana, I have actually driven a truck that would have been perfect for Northern California. My uh, dear, not departed, because I sold it to an extended family member, but um, sold to someone else. Um, uh, uh, 1992 Ford XLT uh, truck with with two count them two gas tanks. Um, basically, as one of my friends put it, uh, I was living a Tim Riggins cosplay um, from set, uh, Friday Night Lights, <laughs> and I was in some ways like living up in Northern California. I remember you talking about how you wanted a really big truck, mm-hmm. um, and I had my little truck. I had a Yes, you did. Uh, 99 Toyota Tacoma, which I still have, mm-hmm. and I still love her. Mm-hmm. Um, that just happened to have a Baja racing engine in it, full off-road suspension. So, yes, I would drive uh, the six miles to the gate to get you. Mm-hmm. And, and this was like a Wiley Coyote cliff at some places. Like, it was just like oh. drop off into nothing. Yeah, well, there was a section of that road that was about 200 yards long that I don't know if you ever noticed, had a very large crack running across the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was part of the community efforts to seed the hill with uh, wild grasses, trying to stop the erosion that would eventually cause that road to fall into the bottom of the valley. And nobody was really worried about it happening while they were driving. We were all worried about it happening while our cars were on the other side of it. Necessitating figuring out how to get your vehicles to the other side and then walking past the slip in order to get out of our neighborhood. Uh, so living that far out in the woods, you really depend on your neighbors. You really get to know your neighbors. Um, and it becomes almost its own government. We all got together and made decisions about the road. For a period of time, I was the tractor driver that flattened the roads out um, just because I had access to a tractor. Um, so we all came together on this slip. We all came together when we had um, cartel drug growers growing marijuana out in the woods miles east of our house, but still out in the woods behind us in order to figure out how to get them out of there. Um, It was, yeah, truly living at the end of the world. It was Wild West. Yeah, I'm sure it still is in in many ways. Um, But that was, yeah. It was not designed for an eclipse. Absolutely not, no. I think I may have driven that once, and I think to your wedding was the one time I actually uh, felt like I was in the Oregon Trail and I was about to get the dysentery or whatever. Um, it was, yeah, it was, but it was a great, wonderful, beautiful place, and I'm sure it still is. So you you, uh, you took the walk, you ended up there. Um, do you want to talk about the specifics at all? I don't know how specific you feel comfortable getting. You, I don't remember exactly how uh, specific you get on the in the book with people that you knew or the exact. Well, the book was really written. There were a few uh, anecdotes and things that I learned on the walk that went in the book, but by the time we were at the cabin, um, I was working on a whole different idea of the book, which was more, instead of guerrilla camping, was more about guerrilla homesteading, and largely most of that cabin was built out of recycled goods and what you could scavenge. The 
big difference between my experiences walking and my experiences building a house is that I never got good at building a house. I never became a subject matter expert. It was a fabulous adventure, but the last thing I should be doing is giving people advice on how to build a house. Oh, I, un- I know, I but just... The <laughs> genre of how not to book <laughs> um, on some of my experiences. Just likewise, I should never write a book about replacing the brakes on your 95. <laughs> no, 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 and I wasn't implying that earlier, but all I was saying was, and this was in the same vein, I appreciate that you had enough confidence in yourself and your now wife, who you obviously care very much about, her safety too, not just your own, and now your son, um, uh, you know, you were willing to attempt these bold things, um, and you didn't care that you hadn't done them before, and you didn't, you knew that there were, uh, you know, a lot of things are, are really, you know, they're life or death some things, if you're out on the mountain, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, and you have enough, you know, you have enough, you have enough confidence in your own abilities and your ability to execute things that you would put yourself in that situation and, and know that you had to make it work. Yeah. So one of those situations was actually the end of the long walk. Um, Ryan, my wife, said that um, she wasn't really cut out for the long nomadic lifestyle, um, and so I went solo and continued north. And I was about 15 miles north of Dos Rios. And if you can look it up on a map, it's catty-cornered into the wilderness in a really strange way. And north of Dos Rios is an unused train track that stretches all the way up to Humboldt, right along the Eel River. And I rolled a rock underneath my foot uh, in the middle of nowhere with a probably 60-pound pack because I needed to carry two weeks of food with me at that time. Um, And I crippled myself. And I had to hobble back to the road, recover on the side of the Eel River first, then hobble back to the road, and hitchhike back to town. And that's one of those situations where you really do have your life riding on your experience and your decisions. Um, And at no point did I think I was going to die. Um, I did consider the fact that I would have to leave all of my gear in the middle of the woods. Thankfully, I didn't. Um, but, yeah, that um, having the confidence in your own abilities through life just gives you so much in terms of you're never afraid to try something. So it broadens your horizons and it broadens the possibilities of what you can experience in life. Um, and that was the cabin, was me trying to prove myself that I could build a house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did. It's true. So the cabin was offered as a speculative deal. Um, I should also not write books about real estate <laughs> uh, or contract law. Um, but the deal went south, and we just decided it was time. We'd learned enough. We kind of sorted things out with the uh, original owners of the property and moved back to town. And it was it was heartbreaking in a way, but when I look at how everything has worked out since then, it was a very um, rapid return to civilization and the ability for me to pick up my career um, from when I had left it uh, was remarkably fast, thanks to a number of friends, yourself included. Oh. So it was 
Yeah, it was not traumatic. It was just slightly heartbreaking. Sure, absolutely. But I think even, you know, as, as somebody who's been up and down, of course, like anybody, you know, I feel like you, you definitely learn more from, from being down than up, you know. And you definitely you know certain things that you won't repeat and certain things that you uh, didn't do that you should have. 90% of learning to fly a plane is learning to land it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, yeah, the cabin was a good adventure. It was a good end of the trip, um, and as the trip was a, uh, the goal for our walk was to find a place to settle, live, and raise a family. What the eventual discovery was, was that you can't do it alone, and that you need your support network and your family and your friends. Um, and that was what brought us back to San Diego. But, I mean, San Diego is probably a pretty great place to come back to, I'm sure. I've been there. My, I have family that have lived there, and my brother got married there. Yeah, San Diego, for us, is an amazing place to raise a child with. The museums, the parks, the schools, um, the marine institutes. Um, it is It's an odd mix of college town and military town. So there are millions of opportunities to explore for him. There is absolutely no weather. My weather application now is just a picture that says 70 degrees and sunny. <laughs> yes. Um, if you get half an inch of rain, I actually have it worked out with my employer. But if it is drizzling in the morning, I do not come to work. <laughs> because immediately traffic completely stops. Um, because people do not know how to drive in the rain. I know it's a stereotype about Southern Californians. Um, but they will cut off big rigs. Most of the big rigs just stand on their brakes, spin and flip and block all lanes of traffic. That's horrifying. In the drizzle. <laughs> and it's not that it, well, the horrifying is usually no one's hurting these things. It's just you have cars spun out on the road everywhere and you just can't move. It's literally a dead standstill. Um, I was stuck in traffic so bad one day that I realized that I could simply park my car and get home faster walking. 13 miles, 2 hours and 10 minutes. Yeah. I'm not a real big fan of living around this many people. I feel the same way. I had my happy place in the middle of the woods. Yeah. That was one nice thing about it. It was funny. The first time that Ash and I um, landed in uh, San Francisco, and um, we went to the car rental agency. We had to go to the special, like, super shady uh, car rental agency, by the way, because I wasn't old enough to rent a car on my own. Um, so I had to go to this place that would accept, like, a debit card or something. <laughs> and I got this, like, janky. Uh, you know, 70-something cutlass. I don't even know what it was. Um, anyway, the guy, when I when I was picking up the keys, he was like, where are you going? And I was like, oh, we're going to Ukiah. He's like, are you trying to disappear? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and then I got there, and then I realized, oh, okay, I see what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, so we, um, during the walk, um, we worked on farms, mm -hmm. uh, which is actually how we found the property where the cat was built. Um, and during the walk, we would tell people, oh, we're working on an educational farm outside of Willits. Mm -hmm. And 90% of people would go, oh, what do they grow on that farm? <laughs> oh, you're a, are you an agricultural worker? <laughs> 
Right, and that's what everybody was thinking. But meanwhile, we really were going to a thousand-acre farm that hosted like a hundred kids at a time up there to learn where their food came from, to learn what wilderness was like. So they would bring these inner-city kids up to wander the woods, Um, and it was backed up against the Mendocino National Forest. And it was a beautiful, wild, pristine place. And it was a true thousand-acre working farm um, called Emmendal, a beautiful place. We had no idea that the primary industry in Mendocino County was marijuana, which led to many hilarious encounters both on the walk and as we uh, settled there in the community. And I believe we lived there for a total of about seven years in Mendocino County. Um, and, yep, it is definitely a marijuana town. Yeah. Or a marijuana county. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I should probably just explain that for people that don't know, I was a reporter at the Ukiah Daily Journal uh, for two years. Um, I covered local, uh, county, uh, you know, and state uh, government, uh, also school boards, um, did the occasional crime story, feature story. Um, but anyway, yes, he's absolutely right. How would you, what else could we say about Mendocino County for people that, that have never lived? there. You and I have both lived there um, for several years. Rippies, I think, is... Yeah. It was a a gentleman that I met while we were still working at the farm. I was still living out of a backpack, um, and this guy said, you know, here in Mendocino County, we're rippies. We're rednecks, but we're hippies. Um, And it has got a... The strangest conservative bent in the world, because everybody has their own ideas, recognizes that everybody else has their own ideas, and are willing to just live next to each other and be cool with having their own ideas. Um, When squabbles break out, it's about whether or not they should have fast food in the county center. Um, Whether or not uh, Lynn Gravier should be feeding the bears um, outside of Laytonville. Um, but there aren't really huge, um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly conservative, but at the same time, very liberal in that everybody's just, no, do your own thing, man, but just don't come on my property or I'll shoot you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting crossbreed because I think what you have to understand is that there was, I mean, would you would you explain about the back to the land movement for people that don't know? I mean, I don't know how many people know outside of Northern yeah. California. Yeah, actually, um, I'll put in a plug for one of my former employers. Um, so back in the '60s, there was a huge back to the land movement, which I'm sure everybody's aware of. Is the hippies in San Francisco um, realized that they couldn't live their ideals in a city, so a lot of them just got out of the city and decided to start farms. Well, Mendocino County was just far enough that it was past wine country. It was inconveniently far enough that the property prices were incredibly low. So a lot of these hippies moved back or moved to Mendocino County in the late 60s. Uh, once they got there, they discovered that, okay, we're out in the middle of nowhere, we have no money, and we have no electricity. And this back to the land thing is a little bit rough. And, of course, a lot of people gave up and went back to the city. Um, But a lot of people, in order to finance themselves, started growing weed out in the middle of nowhere. Now, I'm not going to name names, 
But a number of Mendocino's finest wineries actually started out as pot-growing operations that then started making wine in order to launder the money. Um, and, yes, if you ever go wine tasting in Mendocino County, I would say probably 25 to 30% of the wineries started with little pot farms. Um, but the company that uh, I eventually worked for before I left Mendocino County, uh, Real Goods, was the first solar retailer in the United States. And all of the hippies looked at these solar panels that the uh, founder had gotten. And what? What? No, electricity, that's, that's the devil stuff, man. No, we're, we're back to the land. We're embracing Mother Nature. And so he had a couple solar panels hooked up to some car batteries and a TV that had been ripped out of a motorhome. And every Saturday night he would turn that TV on. And everybody would gather and watch Saturday Night Live. And I have been trying to convince uh, John Schaefer, the founder of Real Goods, to do a TED Talk about this. Um, but he was recently interviewed by the Wall Street Journal about um, marijuana and the excess money that these back-to-the-land people had um, allowed them to buy this very early technology in order to simply have things like electric lights. And Real Goods at one point was the largest solar company in the United States, running right from the heart of Mendocino County. Um, in fact, three of the major uh, solar distributors all started between Mendocino and Humboldt. Yeah, uh, John Schaefer is an interesting guy. I'd, I'd love to talk to him on the podcast. That would be great. I can, I can absolutely make that happen. That would be great. Yeah, he's a, he's an interesting yeah, dude. I think I've, yeah, I think I interviewed him a couple times for various things, and he was always very. It was always like, I never felt like the conversation was long enough. You know. Oh yeah, he, and he is way more engaging than I am. He's been running real goods for forty years. Yeah, and he's got his story down. Sure he does. Um, yeah, he needs to do a TED Talk. Oh, sure. Starting of Real Goods. Because to hear him tell that story, and I've heard it on a number of occasions and a number of events, um, and it is a wild yarn. Great. Yeah, but definitely if you could hook that up, that would be awesome. Because, yeah, he would be a great person to talk to. Yeah, and John loves to talk, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's important. Um, and I don't think he was part of the camp that called you that Burgess. Oh no, this Burgess. But I, uh, I have a short suspect oh, list. Was, um, I don't think anonymity has a place in small town journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. I'm definitely one who appreciates the importance of nom de plumes um, and pseudonyms when um, writing in politics, um, writing about gracious trespassing. Uh, my book was entirely written under the pen name Black Packer for the Gorilla News Network um, when it was in its early blog stages, and I had many editorial fights uh, with the editors of GNN over the fact that I did not want my name attributed to it. Hmm. Um, but but, you, but you're I, saying this now because you seem like you're okay with it. I'm saying it now because it, I did eventually come out and say it. But I was writing for a news site called the Gorilla News Network. Um, there were, a, during the Bush administration, during um, what some people have described as America's darkest years, uh-huh. um, I was on the no-fly list um, because of what I wrote under my own name. Mm-hmm. Um, and writing about trespassing um, and... Yeah, my book is not um, a vanilla camping book. 
No, no, it not does at all. have uh, a lot of uh, political leanings in it. Um, and left out of Gorilla Camping were a lot of the other blog posts I was writing. Um, and at that time, I did not want my name tied to an Internet forum um, in that way. Looking back, I almost wish I had. Um, one of my articles was cited by Financial Times. Hmm. Um, and just, you know, a little one-paragraph quote to an analogy that I had made. Hmm. But I sometimes think back, well, wow, if I had been using my real name, like da-da-da-da-da. Um, oh, the nuts and bolts of the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> or shall I say nuts and bolts? <laughs> you could say that, I guess, sure. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say it again. The third time it's not funny. I've been trying to teach my son this. Ah, more than Beetlejuice shows up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's it. The next time he tells a joke three times, I'll make him watch Beetlejuice right before bedtime. Oh, wow. Beetlejuice is a wildly inappropriate movie for children in retrospect. <laughs> it's amazing having children, what winds up being like wildly inappropriate. Um, we watched Fern Gully. Oh, yeah? And it terrified him. We had to turn it off. The idea is that there was like an evil entity in a tree. Mm-hmm. The oil slick monster in Fern Gully just terrified him. Yeah, my son was initially excited about The Land Before Time, and then, like, five minutes into it, he was like, mm-mm, done. Yeah, at that age, I mean, it might as well be Jurassic Park. Exactly. When I think back to my childhood, and I mean, I remember seeing Bambi in theaters when I was about five. And, I mean, that starts out on a little bit of a bleak note. But then there's Star Wars, which I have no qualms about watching with him <laughs> over and over and over again. So he, he has taken to the whole series. Yes, uh, we have not watched the new one yet because he has not yet gained the ability to remain silent through a movie. <laughs> um, and I did not want to expose him to Star Wars Star Wars fandom with him asking a question every five minutes. And I am also not going to throw a spoiler onto your podcast. <laughs> I wouldn't do that, man. Um. <laughs> Although there is a moment in The Force Awakens that I'm sure Spencer would have had, like, drinks or popcorn thrown at him. Oh, no, because he would have just uh, exploded. Yes. (laughs) Yes, so we'll be waiting for that one to uh, come to the small screen. Well, hey, I want to, before we go, because it's getting to near the hour mark, um, can you talk longer, or do you want to just go an hour? Yeah, I can talk a little bit longer. Okay. Um, Well, I I definitely wanted to talk about this before we go. I did listen to the David Bowie album that you were talking about, um, and I, I think it's great. I really do. Um, you said a pretty astounding thing, I think. You think it is the best David Bowie album. Hmm. No, I went so much further than that. I said that I'm going to have to wait a couple of years before I decide whether my first impression that it may be the most astounding rock album since Dark Side of the Moon still stands. Just the fact that he knew he was dying when he set out to write and record and conceptualize this album um, is... um, It elevates rock to literature um, in a really profound way. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that it was an amazing end to Bowie's career. Um, and 
a great um, an end cap. That just nope. Here you go. That just puts all of his other albums into an arcing context, um, particularly um, as a man who consistently artistically redefined himself. It yeah, mind blowing album. Um, and I don't know that I would call it David Bowie's best album. But I would say that it is definitely in the top five of the best rock albums of all time. That's still a strong statement. It's a very strong statement, and I, I reserve the right to walk away from that. We're going to let David Bowie's body cool a little bit <laughs> um, and let the, the legend fade a bit um, before I stand by that statement. Yeah. Um, Strong statements are made in times of sorrow and loss. Absolutely, absolutely. But you're right. He did. He did see it coming. He did put all of his other work into a context. Um, he um, he really he was a finely tuned machine artistically. And when the end came, as any artist would hope to do, he confronted it head on, and he had something to say about it. Yeah, um, and left us with an amazing piece of art. Exactly, and that's and that's something to be proud of. For that's like going to make him now he's immortal. You know, he already was immortal, but now it's like okay. Now, now that the fact that he died two days after his birthday, sixty ninth birthday, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the album had come out on his birthday. Um, and the video, you, I mean, we should mention the videos too. I mean, the videos going with right. it or something else, right? You, you, you see that. Yeah, well, Black Star and Lazarus were actually produced as one video. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're the first two tracks on the album. Um, and, yes, together, um, they really talk about... Um, God, they talk about so many things, but I think the, the thing that I took away from it most was Bowie looking at his own legacy as a legend and how after he dies, people will take that legend. Um, so there's a scene where... You've got the man in the space helmet, uh, throwing back to the space oddity days, um, and how they worship it in their own weird way in this weird dance that has hints of Bowie in it, but the legend becomes um, property of the people and in many ways has nothing to do with the person upon whom the legends are based, which is a powerful statement just on human history. And he certainly wasn't comparing himself to Jesus, but there was definitely um, quite a bit of religious inklings in those videos. Yeah, but I think Jesus is a, for artists, I think that you see it done a lot because it's an easy story to emulate. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Um, Yeah, there's a, jumping back to where we were talking about fatherhood, um, if you haven't seen it, there are currently TED Talks on Netflix for Kids. Really, and one of them is Joseph Campbell's "The Hero's Many Faces." The Hero with Many Faces. Oh, that's cool. And my son has watched that about five or six times. And to have my son in the middle of a movie or in the middle of a story suddenly go, "Well, this is the hero's path." Like he's in he's in the self identity phase now. And I'm like, "You're five years old, and you're you're quoting Joseph Campbell." <laughs> um, but you could take a look at. Bowie's entire artistic arc. And if not on the um, whole career level, at least on many of his albums, you can see that he used that hero's arc, um, which it was there for Jesus, was there for Zoroaster, 
was there for it's present in Fight Club. It's a very strong literary device. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's an amazing piece of work all around, and um, it's really like it, there's a certain like feeling that you get of just it's just very unease, like it's just like you know it's like impending doom like all the time and everything like and, and I'm sure that's part of what he was feeling and he wanted to express. In the videos? Oh, and the songs. I I think I think the whole album has a certain like I don't know I don't know if you call it a rhythm or a, or a certain like syncopation or something. It's a certain like disconcerting like I don't know if it's oh. a time signature or what. But it's just like it's a very like I didn't feel like at ease when I was listening to it. <laughs> you know, it's a hard album to listen to in a lot of ways. It, it's shameful on my part because it's Bowie, Bowie, Bowie. Um, but the group that he worked with, and he's worked with them in the past, they're a jazz group, mm-hmm. um, and they have been um, in various ways contributing to his studio work for the last decade at least. Um, and they're astounding. But in this album, they were his entire band, um, and they wrote everything. And they were unaware that Bowie was done through the entire process. Yeah, in terms of the unease, then, um, I also think to songs like Pity She's a Whore, there's a line where he says, then she hit me like a dude, and he chuckles at the end of the line. And it's just, it's kind of, I hear it, and it's, oh, he's looking back on his life, and he's kind of laughing um, at the loves he's had. Um, that he's still entertained looking back at his life, but it isn't a fear of death um, as much as it's kind of a uh, encapsulation and expression of his life. Yeah, I think it was significant that last song uh, that on the album, or the, maybe the second to last song, uh, what was it, I Can't Give It All Away or something? Mm-hmm. That was a significant yeah. song, I thought. Yeah, I Can't Give Everything Away. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Like, I am an artist, but I have to keep something for myself. Right. Um, But I also think that, um, and I wish I had the lyrics. Now, one of the things you and I had originally discussed was listening to it on a separate track that we could then mute out. And then you and I talked through the entire album, which I still think would be a very fun thing to do. We could still Um, do that. We could still, would this be like a fight companion when people have like a a UFC fight on and they have like a podcast of like commentators that like put this in your earbuds while you watch the thing or whatever? Yeah, like a Twitter feed or something. (laughs) Like um, Ian Peel at the Super Bowl. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, guess, I, I didn't yeah, see that, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. for squarespace.com for the Super Bowl. Um, I didn't see it either, but yeah, just a companion track. Um, almost like the earbuds you get when you go to a museum. <laughs> only with, uh, are you are, talking, uh, talking over Bowie. Um, are you saying we should be also, the uh, docents for the David Bowie uh, uh, Black Star Experience Museum? <laughs> Um, I don't think either of us are qualified, which is probably exactly why we should. Um, but in that song, I can't give everything away. Um, I think he's also bemoaning the fact that he can't. He's running out of time. Mm. And he wants to. There's more he wants to give. Sure. Um, but there's just not enough time. Oh, yeah. It's a great enemy. Absolutely. But I heard that he um, had plans to keep working. He didn't know that, that was he was actually going to die when he did, necessarily. Like, he like he thought, Mate, well, if I keep living, I've still got, like, five more songs I want to record or something. I think every artist would. Sure. I think the person on their deathbed who has no regrets is kind of sad because it means there was nothing more you wanted to do. Interesting. And I can appreciate the idea of being content. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I can't understand the idea of not being hungry for more. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only two uh, albums that I can think of that I could compare, that I know of, that I can compare to Black Star um, thematically, as far as knowing you're going to die and, and making some statement. Um, one would be Jay Della, uh, Donuts. I have not heard it. Oh, really? Um, you know who Jay Della is, I'm sure, right? I've heard the name, but I oh. have not um, delved into his books at all. Oh, wow, you really should, um, especially since we haven't mentioned it yet, but you are an incredible DJ. Incredibles taking it a step too far, I think. To my uh, to my ear, I was I, I was, was impressed. I was a DJ for a while. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was part of my San Francisco years. Sure, I did make a decent living as a DJ. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, but anywho, uh, Jay Dilla Donuts, you should look it up. It's great. Anyway, it was like he he was dying of uh, I believe lupus related uh, things, and he was on his deathbed with a, a, a some pads and just like composing beats, you know, as he's dying, and like he was like that was his work in the last you know days of his life. Um, oh wow! And I actually went to one of my assignments when I worked for Nouveau News Weekly here in Indianapolis. Was I covered a um, at the Jazz Kitchen downtown? I covered a uh, Jay Dilla a Remembrance Night, where Black Milk, who is another producer from Chicago, or, uh, Detroit, rather, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, he was uh, the main headliner, but um, it was in remembrance of Jay Dilla because he had worked with him. Um, but it was it was an incredible experience. But anyway, um, that's one. And then the other one was, I believe, Warren Zevon also um, on his like when he knew he was dying or whatever. I can't remember mm-hmm. if the song was called Enjoy Every Sandwich or if the album was or if that had anything to do with it. Maybe it was something else. Um, I'm not going to look it up. It's more fun to speculate. Um, <laughs> um, but that, but I have never, like, other than that, I've never heard of somebody. Maybe Frank Zappa. Did Frank Zappa do something similar, maybe? Um, yeah, but I think that was all of Frank Zappa's albums. <laughs> I had Frank Zappa always thought, oh, they're going to kill me for this one. <laughs> yeah. I've been getting into Frank Zappa. I didn't um, didn't really get into that early in my life. Well, as a car rental person once said to you, are you trying to disappear? <laughs> <laughs> um, disappear I, into I, the I music. Zappa. <laughs> I love Zappa, but at times he's absolutely confounding. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, um, I had an interesting moment um, at the local pub. I discovered they had karaoke night, and one of my uh, uh, acquaintances there, we had the great idea that, okay, I'll pick a song for you, and you pick a song for me. And that bastard hit me with Zappa. Wow. A Zappa song that I'd never heard before. Oh, boy. Let alone ever imagined. What was it? Wow. Zappa on karaoke? I don't even remember the name of the song, but it was, as Cosby would say, so frickin' filth. (laughs) I'm up there singing karaoke with three lesbians sitting at the bar that's talking about having sex with a woman in ways that only Frank Zappa could. Um, And meanwhile, my buddy Aaron is sitting there maniacally is I'm trying to keep meter let alone like keep a straight face while singing this song um, but yes I cannot recall the name of the song but it was absolutely outrageous and I went back later and I listened to the Zappa song and Zappa's wonderful 
use of syncopation and broken rhythms, there is no possible way that song could be sung on karaoke. I mean, he was like some kind of wizard or something, but didn't he get into like, uh, oh, I don't know, wasn't it classical music or some weird thing at the end of his life? Mm-hmm. Or was it like, no, it was like, it wasn't classical, it was like scores or something, like he wanted to score things, like... Yeah, not classical, but more doing arrangements. Yeah, exactly. Uh, multiple instruments. So sure. that was the thing, and Zappa played a number of instruments. Yeah, but I don't know that Zappa uh, really f- framed off. I think that every Zappa album is kind of a bookend to everything he's done prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, another legendary artist who was constantly in the process of redefining himself. Uh, I guess the closest literary equivalent that I could think of would be Burroughs, mm. who is constantly just kind of pushing the the limits of what, I almost want to say what you can get away with mm-hmm. and still have it be called literature, but just constantly redefining. Yeah, I've wanted to read Burroughs. I've never gotten around to it. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, and knowing uh, how much you love Hunter Thompson. I do. I can't read Hunter Thompson without framing him within the reference of being so greatly inspired by Burroughs. I mean, not so much in the mechanics of his writing, but the entire idea of gonzo journalism. I believe in an interview Hunter Thompson even threw back to Burroughs on that one, was being actually immersed in the creative process and making the creative process the creative product. Not that uh, Thompson would ever call his work product, but... I think I knew that. Yeah. Um, read Junkie. Junkie? If nothing else. Yeah, read Junkie. It's accessible. Um, Naked Lunch is amazing, but Naked Lunch is a little bit like um, jumping into Finnegan's Wake instead of the Dubliners. Um, it's just it's a hard read. Well, right now I'm trying to read um, Salman Rushdie's uh, Satanic Verses. So. Hmm, I should make an uh, introduction to uh, my friend um, Melanie. Um, she got her uh, master's degree, um, specifically on Salman Rushdie. Uh, oh. Yes, um, and I believe it was the book uh, that she focused on was uh, Wind Beneath Her Wings. Mm. Uh, Melanie, if you're listening, I'm sorry if I've got that wrong, um, but she is an incredible fan of Salman Rushdie and has met him and spoke with him on a number of occasions. Um, and it, this was done shortly after the initial um, backlash and crisis had. Wow. wow. Person. Do you think she would maybe talk to me as well, maybe? Yeah, she blogs um, uh, under – her blog is called So I Follow Julian, um, and she blogs just strictly about books and literature. Um, she's an amazing reader, works in museums, uh, really, really fascinating person. You met her, actually, at the wedding. Yeah, I think I know who you're she talking about. She's one of the mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, yeah, I've got a lot of introductions to make for you. Well, just two, but two big ones. I would love to have either of them on. Um, and yeah, I can definitely introduce you to both John and Melanie. Very cool. Well, is there anything else, you know, we didn't talk about? Is there anything we didn't get to? I mean, we, we can talk again. You know, this isn't the only time you can come on. I hope we do this regularly uh, because you're uh, just fascinating to talk to. So... Well, I, I hope that I'm fascinating to listen to. Uh, talk all the time. It's the fact that it's recording. I feel that our conversation has been a little bit, um, uh, a little bit, uh, 
I don't want to say lifeless, but it, nowhere near as animated as some of our conversations. So I do well, hope we get to do it again. Well, how about this? Um, you know, like every time I, I lay out an idea in my writing, I feel like the first time I write about it has to be very, you know, procedural, and you have to make sure you get all your details correct. Um, but then the second and third and however many other times you write about the same thing or, you know, go off the same idea, you've already covered the basics. So if anybody wants to know about them, you've already done it. Um, then you can get into just bouncing off of that idea. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, this is a good, I just wanted this to be more just a casual kind of introduction to you. Um, and, uh, just the, you know, you've always got interesting things to say, as I'm sure people have figured out by now. And, uh, yeah, so do you have, like, a website or anything that you want to, like, promote for this book, or is there a yeah, place people so, can go? Yeah, guerrillacamping.net. Um, as much as I dislike the .net, uh, my blog had a large following at GNN, and it immediately led to my domains being slotted back in the day. So if I wanted GorillaCamping.com, it would cost me about $15,000. Mm. Um, so I'm at GorillaCamping.net. Um, I'm giving away a free chapter prior to the book being released. Um, and you'll be able to buy the book, read the original blogs, um, and I am, of course, adding new content now. So, yeah, I would love for people to come visit. And I will also, once the uh, podcast goes up, be linking there. Very cool, very cool. And I just noticed, and this is like another piece of serendipity here, um, I wanted to, I decided that I'm going to release these on Fridays, um, Friday mornings. Um, and I noticed that you said March 11th, right, is when it's coming out? Mm-hmm. That's Friday, and that's like sort of when I was thinking of releasing this. Um, so this is perfect. Uh, I'll try to get it out on the day it's released. Oh, that would be great. That would be a great first episode. Synergy. Why, what, you, what would be the marketing term for that? It's <laughs> the marketing term for that is a uh, tent post campaign. Oh, great. Uh, okay. So just like a, uh, I know there's a little bit of uh, irony there. So you work on events. So if you're uh, in marketing, if you're pushing for like a Christmas sale, you've got a tent post. Everything leads up to the initial launch. That's your tent post, and then you spend just as much marketing right before as you do right after. Mm-hmm. Um, so March 11th is definitely the tent post. <laughs> Uh, the marketing for my book. Uh, is there anything else you want to say before we go? I mean, I don't want to. Um, no, I'm trying to think of something witty, like um, uh, better to die on your feet than serve on your knees or something like that. But really, uh, any sort of tagline that, like that escapes me at the moment. <laughs> Viva revolution. There we go. <laughs> that works. Viva. All right, man. Um, well, it's good talking to you. It was good talking to you, and I can't wait for the podcast to come out, and congratulations on the first episode. Excellent. Thank you, and I appreciate you coming on, man. It was great talking. Definitely. And I will talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.